0: All right, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. It's our text. Matthew 12, we're studying together, of course, through this gospel. I mentioned in summary that this section that we're looking at here chapters 11 to 13, highlights various responses to Jesus' ministry, culminating in a series of parables that he tells in chapter 13 that illustrate those responses and the connection between those responses and the coming of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, much of the response to Jesus has been ultimately negative, though He did have many crowds following him at first. In the end, by and large, most of the people that he ministered to rejected his message, turned away from him as the Messiah. He came unto his own, but his own, what? Received him not. And at the forefront of that opposition to Jesus' ministry was the Jewish leadership. And among them were a sect of the Jews called the Pharisees. And if you've read much in the Bible, you are familiar already from the Gospels of the opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees to the ministry of Jesus and how their influence moved by and large the people of Israel to turn away from the Lord. The Pharisees were the most, one of the most religious, zealous sects within Judaism at that time. They were very um, religious ab- and zealous about the law, but they were blinded by their own self-righteousness and their own self-sufficiency. Well, in the two paragraphs that are our text today, which are the first two paragraphs of Matthew chapter 12, the, Jesus has uh, interactions with these Pharisees. And the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, both, has, uh, b- both of these uh, confrontations have one thing in common, and that was they were controversies about the Sabbath day. In each of these controversies, in each of the paragraphs in front of us, Jesus is going to reason with them by way of analogy, a sort of comparison to a similar kind of situation. And then from these analogies, Jesus is going to draw a conclusion and make a point that they ought to take uh, heed to. Uh, So what we're going to be doing as we look through these two paragraphs today, is reasoning, along with Jesus, about the Sabbath, and we'll see by extension about a number of issues, a couple of issues. Sometimes, you know, when we come to church, our rightly so, our desire is to hear a sermon that will be very practical for how we're supposed to live and um, and sometimes that, even among preachers this happens, a desire to make the talk very practical um, sometimes hinders and obscures reasoning our way through the Word. And it is often the case that, in fact I think it's always the case, that right, right living is founded on right understanding. Right understanding is not, a, not enough, it's not everything, but it is foundational. And Jesus is going to reason with people. And sometimes when we come to church, what we need to do is reason together. Follow a line of reasoning to its conclusion. Consider the ramifications of the doctrine that the Scripture is spelling out for us And in every case, what we'll find is that ultimately, it will make a difference in how we live. If we receive it, if we listen to the Word, if we let the Word shape how we think, it will shape how we act. And so today, Jesus doesn't give us so many commands or instructions so much as He reasons with us to think rightly, but I'm telling you, it makes all the difference in the world. And this sermon will not be without practical implications for our lives. But let's give ourselves to just reasoning along with our Lord. And uh, you all who are regular here, you uh, I know that's your commitment. You have come every week to hear long sermons of reasoning through a text and uh, come ready to hear. So I'm so thankful for that. Let's give ourselves to the Lord's Words today. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 is the text. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Here's the first analogy. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Here's his conclusion. I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the second situation. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, here's the analogy now. Which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That's our text. Now, before we look too closely at it, I want to say two things by way of introduction. First is to highlight um, what, what would become apparent if you read it enough times or if you're Paying really close attention, and that is, there is a word that's repeated in these fourteen verses four times. A word that's repeated four times. In fact, go ahead and take a look, see if you spot it. Okay, it's the word. Can we find it? Be the brave one to say it out loud. Huh? Well, okay, yeah. Well, I, uh, I probably should have, uh, should have clarified. There are probably more several repeated words. Sabbath, of course, is repeated. Um, There's another word, and that's the word lawful. Look at it again. Look at the text. It's in verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12. The issue is, you're correct, about the Sabbath, but particularly with regard to the Sabbath, what is lawful concerning the Sabbath? What is in keeping with the Old Testament? What is in keeping with the law of God? That's the key issue, the Old Testament law. And the key and and the uh, specific issue is what is the Old Testament law? What is the proper interpretation of the Old Testament law? And specifically with regard to the Sabbath day. But there's an even deeper issue besides what is lawful or unlawful. For the Sabbath day, there's a deeper issue, and that is this. Who has the right to make that interpretation? Who has the right to interpret the law in a way that is authoritative with regard to the Sabbath? And so that issue becomes a really significant issue uh, as well as Jesus unfolds this. So that's that's the key word. The second thing I want you to see by way of background. Um, is this. With regard to the question of who it is that has the right to interpret God's laws about the Sabbath, there was one group of people who had a very strong opinion about that. And that was themselves. I mean, they said, we have the right to interpret the laws about the Sabbath. That's our job. We are experts in that. We will tell you what the Sabbath laws are. And that, of course, was the Pharisees. And that's why there was such a big controversy here. So let me say a little bit about the Pharisees. Um, I know most of you probably are familiar. This very strict religious sect of the Jews, and of course there were many sort of um, different factions within Judaism, but this is one of the the most zealous religious sects. Um, They were the self-appointed interpreters of the law, and they had cultivated the interpretation of the Old Testament over many, many years and have a long-standing history of interpretation um, and not only in interpretation but then application of the law. And so they took the, the rules of the law and they made application by way of sort of making the law more specific to very detailed situations in life, so that in the end, no one had to rely on their own judgment about the interpretation and the application of the Mosaic Law, but rather these people, the learned people, would tell you what the application was. But here is where it really gets um, gets, uh, off, and that is that over the years of the interpretations and the applications of the law, the Pharisees had elevated their extension of the law, their interpretations and applications of the law, they had elevated that to the level of, as it were, the law itself. In fact, these people had become... Um, outwardly, just everything that, you know, the strictest Jew could be. And yet, in many cases, all of that masked hearts of unbelief, which is really sobering to think about. But in their hearts, they were unbelieving. And so sometimes, even by their external keeping of the law, In their hearts, they were violating the whole purpose of it, the whole spirit of it. And of course, when the one person came who embodied the law of God, they were repulsed by Him because their hearts had already become hardened to the intent of God's law all along. So because they rejected Him who gave the law, they rejected Him who was the embodiment of all of that Old Testament revelation. This was the Pharisees, and they had a great deal to say about the Sabbath. <laughs> I sat down this week and did some light reading of the. Now this is um, rabbinical tradition that comes a little bit from a little bit later time than the time that we read about of Jesus and the Pharisees, but the same sorts of traditions that became codified. Uh, in, in later Jewish writings uh, were already present in the rabbinical and, and the Pharisaical tradition of Jesus' day. Um, later rabbis wrote lengthy tracts on what you could and could not do on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. Um, there were 39 different types of work that could be performed, I mean, that, that would be a violation of the Sabbath if you performed them on um, on the Sabbath day. And by the way, of course, you know that Sabbath is, I mean, there is a weekly Sabbath for the people of Israel. There's a weekly Shabbat, a day of rest. Um, the, uh, the, the the end of every week, every seventh day is their day of rest. But also, there are additional uh, Sabbaths, high Sabbaths, um, holy days on which you were to rest and give exclusively to God. And there were um, a number of these throughout the Jewish calendar, including up to eight of them in a row at one point. So these are the rules about the, the, that the Pharisees uh, put together about what you could or what could not do on, on the Sabbath. Of course, the Lord had said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You should not do any work on the Sabbath. There were some specific um, examples of that. But by and large, it was left as a, as a, as a very open principle within the Old Testament Scripture. Now, the Pharisees came and they made it very, very specific. As I said, outlining 39 different ways you could work and so violate the Sabbath. There were things that you could and could not do. For example, you could write, in their view, a single letter on the Sabbath day, but you could not write two together because that was now entering into a phase of work. Or you could erase one letter, but you could not erase two. One person could carry a loaf of bread, and it would be a violation of the Sabbath. But if they got a partner to help them carry the loaf of bread, then they could carry the loaf of bread on the Sabbath. If a woman chewed her fingernails or braided her hair on the Sabbath, that was a violation. If you had two balconies and two homes with balconies facing each other, you know, the the apartments are next to each other, the balconies are looking toward each other, you could hand something from one balcony over to the next balcony, and you would be fine. But if your balconies were side by side, adjoining each other in a building in parallel, you could not hand something over to the person on the next balcony, or that would be work. You were able, though, to toss it, and that would be fine. So there were a number of rules, and, uh, and you can read about these as, as they were developed in later years. There were very strained and creative uses of obscure Old Testament passages to justify the various rules that were being put forth, proof texting their rabbinical traditions. And of course, there were always nuances, exceptions, disagreements even among the rabbis, so that in some of these traditions you'll read, Rabbi so-and-so thinks this is okay on the Sabbath, but Rabbi so-and-so disagrees. And so there were, you know, multiple interpretations and arguments and debates among the rabbis. The Pharisees had placed such a burden of detail upon the people of God that the effect was, if you wanted to be pure, then you were dependent on them. And, of course, as the most knowledgeable and the most conscientious about all of their rules, they also felt that they were the most holy and most likely to enter into heaven. And it became a system that was really not much different from a system of meriting eternal life, which, of course, was antithetical to the message that Christ came preaching, that salvation comes not to those who are whole and well spiritually, but to those who are sick and broken, who cry, I am undone, woe is me. Those are the ones who are justified. and So that message set not well at all with the these Pharisees. Okay, so now we come to the text, and there are two situations um, that Matthew records. Each of them takes place on the Sabbath. The first occurs in a grain field, and Jesus' disciples are hungry. They go out into the field, and they hand-pick kernels of grain and you know, shake off the, the chaff and eat the, eat the kernel. And, and this is not, uh, don't think of them as being thieves. The Old Testament made allowance for this. Poor, the poor could go into the fields, and um, even when the fields were reaped, actually, they were commanded to leave little portions for, for those who were in need. And and you were allowed to go, according to the Old Testament law, into the fields and hand-pick um, some food. You were not supposed to go in with your sickle and you know, do whole-scale uh uh, reaping, but, but you could get enough for yourself. And so, so, the, so they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't stealing or anything like that. That's not, the issue is not the grain that they're taking itself. The Pharisees' concern was that they were doing this on the Sabbath. And, of course, the Old Testament law did forbid God's people from harvesting their crops on the Sabbath day. That's not supposed to be a day where you enrich yourself That's, I mean, materially, that's supposed to be a day where you can be free from that so you can enrich yourself spiritually. So don't labor in the harvesting of your crops on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees interpreted what the disciples were doing as the kind of a harvesting. You know, they're picking grain. And when they knocked the chaff off the outside and ate the kernel, they said that was... That was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not harvesting, but uh, threshing. They're threshing the wheat. Sorry, I went through a blank there. So they're, they're harvesting, they're threshing, they're doing labor on the Sabbath that is forbidden by the law. Jesus gave them an answer. And his answer involved um, drawing out two analogies. The first one, is uh, he reminded them of the story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel about David eating the bread of the presence, or sometimes called the show bread. That special bread, there were 12 loaves, you remember, that were baked in representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every week they were baked and replaced on the table in the holy place inside the temple of God. And that bread sat there in the presence of God. And once a week, the... um, once a week, the old bread was removed and new bread was replaced by the priests. That old bread was eaten by the high priest and his sons as part of God's provision for them to take care of them. Well, in 1 Samuel, the story is that David and his men are running for their lives from King Saul. And they come into, they come to the temple and to the tabernacle rather, and they're very hungry and they obtain permission, unusual permission from the high priest to eat the bread of the, uh, the presence, which is supposed to be only for the, the priests. So Jesus uses this as an, as an analogy, and it's an interesting one because it doesn't directly deal with the issue that the, the Pharisees seem to have, right? They were concerned... That Jesus was doing what, work on the Sabbath? He was harvesting. He was threshing on the Sabbath. He's telling them a story that doesn't have anything to do with harvesting or threshing or any kind of work on the Sabbath. Rather, seems to be selected for a slightly different reason. But we'll come back to that. But I think it might help if we go to the second analogy now, which is you see the sill in the first paragraph now. The second analogy, Jesus draws is to the priests of the temple, of the tabernacle, who worked on the Sabbath day. And of course, they did. You think of all of the work that the priesthood had to do on the Sabbath. They, of course, I already mentioned, they they baked the bread. They They changed out the bread on the Sabbath. They killed the sacrifices. They cut apart these carcasses. There was blood. There were... There were different um, organs that had to, they had to do certain things with different organs. They would take the remains out and burn it outside the camp. A thousand details that had to do with the operations of the temple and the priests. They labored. They labored on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says they quote unquote profane the Sabbath. That is the Sabbath day for the priesthood was, was not, it was kind of like every other day. It was another day of work a sanctified work, but it was, in a way, you could say that those people profaned the Sabbath. They made the Sabbath another common day, and yet Jesus said they are guiltless, of course. Why are they guiltless, even though they profane the Sabbath? The answer has to do with who they are, right? has to do with their unique role, their unique calling it would be wrong for the butcher in the other part of the camp to do exactly the same things that they did on the Sabbath day. But for them, it was okay because of who they were. So then after telling these two analogies, Jesus begins to draw his conclusions and make a point from these things. The point is first stated in verse 6. Take a look again at the text of the Scripture. Jesus makes the point in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Remember the point he's just finished making is this, that the priests who profane the Sabbath are guiltless because of their unique role in the worship of the temple. And now he says something greater than the temple is here. Those guys could quote-unquote profane the Sabbath because they worked in the temple. But now there's something greater than the temple and by extension then greater than the Sabbath, of course. Something greater than the temple, than the Sabbath itself is here. But what is that something? And don't be confused by the fact that he says something instead of someone. He's talking about a person. You know He's talking about a person for one thing because of the way He says something very similar in the end of the chapter. Look at verses 41 and 42. You might draw a little line between these two so you can remember that they're all together in this chapter. Verse 41, Jesus says something greater than what? Somebody see it? Something greater than Jonah is here. And then in verse 42, something greater than what? Solomon is here. These are people. So when he says something greater than the temple is here, he means something greater than not just the physical structure of the tent, although that's You know, an extension of it, but something greater than the whole temple system, the whole priesthood, the whole temple, the whole sacrificial system, something greater than that. I think the reason Jesus keeps saying something instead of someone is because he's not talking about these people individually as people in the Old Testament, but in the terms of their role in the Old Testament, in terms of their function, in terms of their calling. Something greater than these is here. With the coming of Jesus... With the coming of the Messiah, something greater than any Old Testament priest is here. Any Old Testament priest who worked in that temple. Something greater than any Old Testament king, including David, including Solomon. Something greater than any Old Testament prophet like Jonah, whom he mentions. A greater king, a greater priest, a greater prophet is here. That was the point he was after. In other words, Christ's unique authority means that he has the right to say what is and is not permissible on the Sabbath. So he's making a point about what is and is not permissible, but he's making a deeper point about who has the right to determine that. He draws the conclusion further in the analogies in verse 7. I'm sorry, he draws further conclusions from those analogies. Verse 7, and if you know what this means, now he quotes from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He's further drawing a conclusion here. If you had known what this means, what's the saying in the Old Testament? The saying is, I desire mercy, love, not sacrifice, which is a kind of hyperbole of denying one thing in order to emphasize another. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. It's not saying that God doesn't want the people to sacrifice anymore in the days of Hosea. God had commanded them to sacrifice. But what does God want? God doesn't really most deeply want the ritual of the sacrifices. He wants what those sacrifices are supposed to be about, which is a people who come to him in faith, a people who come with love, with steadfast love, and with mercy that flows to their fellow man because of the mercy that they have received at the sacrifice of someone else in their place. This is what he means. The prophets throughout the Scriptures, you you know, throughout the Old Testament continually, condemned the people, um, chastened the people by saying, God doesn't need your dead animals God doesn't need another cow. He doesn't need another goat. <laughs> he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would He come to you for anything? This is not, God is not pleased with your sacrifices, He told them. And, and this was true about the ancient Israelites, and it was true about the Israelites of Jesus' day, at the forefront of which was, were those Pharisees. these people practiced adherence to the law without the love that was supposed to be a part of it. They practiced sacrifice without mercy. They kept the ceremonial law even while breaking the eternal moral law of God to love God and to love others. In fact, sometimes they did the one by doing the other. What I'm saying is they broke God's eternal moral law by the very act of keeping externally the religious ritual testimonies. For example, remember Jesus chides them in another place when he chides them for not keeping the commandment that says you shall honor your what? Father and your mother. And the way they did it was to say in mom and dad's time of old age and distress, I'm sorry, we can't take care of you. We can't help you because our resources have been dedicated to God which is, there was, you know, you, some of you are reading through uh, the Old Testament together, right? You've read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and some of the things that were dedicated to God and, and some of them could be, um, could be redeemed and bought back and you paid, what is it, a fifth again? And, you could, and so there were all of these sort of rules and laws about things that were dedicated to God and vows and, and, and promises and offerings and, and, and they were using this whole system to get out of doing what was really the point of God's law all along. And this is what made Jesus so mad. You can understand, can't you? They are hiding behind this screen of being really zealous for God, and they're fighting against God the whole way. And so, this is probably the reason that Jesus at least one of the reasons that Jesus used that David illustration. Remember David and the showbread? Uh, The situation that David and his men were in was one of great necessity. Um, Letting them eat the, the bread was an act of mercy. They had been forced to flee with very little provision because of Saul's rejection of God's choice of leadership, right? So they were wandering in the wilderness all alone uh, with with nothing, uh, you know, no support. And in that kind of situation, an exception was made to what was normally unlawful, according to the ceremonial law, an exception which nevertheless was in keeping with the intent of the law, which was to bless, to give God's people rest. In other places, Jesus reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, for man's benefit, not to be a burden. Perhaps the logic of it, all right, are you still with me? Perhaps the logic of it kind of runs like this. If the necessity of David allowed for this unusual exception to the ceremonial law, then how much more the necessity of the Messiah and His disciples allowed Him to violate mere pharisaical traditions. So that this was an emphasis on the need of the moment, but also an emphasis on who the Savior was. So while this was a defense of certain interpretations of the Sabbath custom... It was also an assertion of Jesus' right to establish interpretation because of who He is. He is the one greater than David, greater than the temple, greater than even the Sabbath itself. Or, in the words of Jesus in the end of this, in the conclusion, verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now you think about how the Sabbath was spoken of in the Old Testament. Jehovah, Yahweh said, this is my Sabbath. You have profaned my Sabbaths, he says. And here comes the one who says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's making a very powerful point about who he is. And as such, he has the right to interpret, to teach us, about the Old Testament. And, and I can stop here and just say this um, by way of something to take, take with us um, in, a, in an application. Among, among other things that we can learn from this passage is this that proper interpretation of the Old Testament belongs to Jesus Himself. Are we all good on that? Proper interpretation of the Old Testament belongs to Jesus. And the principles that Jesus and his apostles employ give us the necessary tools to comprehend the whole Old Testament revelation. Now, of course, the Pharisees, and in fact the majority of Jews, rejected Jesus' personal claims. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He said, the foxes have... Holds the birds of the air of nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He was rejected by the towns of Galilee, the very towns that He ministered to so much. We just saw that last week. And this is probably why He and His disciples are wandering around in the fields on a Sabbath day with nowhere to eat. With nothing with which to purchase food. No one is receiving them. At this point, they are by and large rejected, so they're reduced to the acts of the poor, picking the gleanings of the fields. Much like David, forced to eat the holy bread because of the rejection of King Saul, of his authority. Here now is the greater son of David facing the same exact situation. And perhaps the analogy could be pressed even further Because in 1 Samuel, we read that there was another party when David went to the the high priest to get the bread. There was a man waiting in the wings, kind of in the shadows, listening and seeing what was going on. His name was Doeg. Doeg the Edomite observed the high priest give the bread to David. Just as the Pharisees observed Jesus give this grain... To the disciples and allow them to pick it. And Doeg, and if you remember in the story, he went uh, and turned the high priest in to the wicked king, King Saul, and Saul took his life. And we read the end of this chapter, look at, I mean, the end of this passage, look at verse 14. This is exactly what happens here. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. It's almost as if Jesus picks this story specifically not only to teach something about himself and about proper interpretation of the law, but even to paint the, the uh, Pharisees in light of who they really were too. Well, that brings us then to the second situation. And very quickly, verses 9 to 13, that situation took place in a, not in a grain field but in a synagogue on another Sabbath day, and there was a man there whose hand was malformed. And they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the text says here, they did this so that they might accuse him, because they already had their answer. Their answer in their minds was no, it's not right to heal on the Sabbath. that's a form of work, according to the Pharisees. There were, there were a few certain minor situations where somebody could do something to alleviate suffering, but you know, but what they they viewed this as an act of rebellion against God, or or they wanted to paint it that way anyway, if Jesus would heal this man. But once again, Jesus answers them with an analogy, doesn't he? He said, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And the assumption is that everyone would. They would do that. Um, this is not work in the sense that you're going about your normal business so that you can get a little bit more material goods for yourself. When Jesus healed this man, he's not making the Sabbath like another day to take care of all of his material needs. He's doing an act of mercy on the Sabbath. He said, this is what the Sabbath's for. The Sabbath is to give you rest. The Sabbath is to bless you and give you a benefit. The logic of this argument, of course, is very clear. People are of much more value than sheep. If you'd save your sheep from the pit on the Sabbath day, how much more should I heal this man on the Sabbath day? And the conclusion that he draws then, of course, is probably obvious as well. So it is lawful, he says. Remember, the whole issue is what is lawful on the Sabbath day? He said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Part of what the Sabbath is for is for works of mercy, to relieve people, even creatures, of their burdens and afflictions. And so he said, stretch out your hand to this man. And he did, and he was... Restored, Which, of course, is a little taste of the eternal rest that Christ will bring to all of those who today are broken or malformed in some way or afflicted in their bodies. We're facing broken, a broken society and a broken world. Jesus gives a little foretaste on that day of rest of the great rest that He brings His people into, in which there is no more effect of the curse, no more thorns and thistles hedging our way, causing our labor to be laborious, but a day when all of our labor will be, as it were, the labor of the priests on the Sabbath, a holy labor. That is a labor of rest. This man is made whole. Now, let me conclude this way. You know, I think we're thinking about these two passages and, and the many places where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And I want to say that there is a danger for us Um a danger of becoming Pharisees or Pharisee-like ourselves. What I mean is these Pharisees were people who very clearly, outwardly were everything that they ought to be. They were people who were going through the motions, but with no real heart for God. And that can take place, even, even people who really belong to the Lord can sort of, slip into that, into a Pharisee likeness for a little while? Where they come into a church, they come into services, and we just go through the motions with no heart for God and very little heart for others. They come Sunday after Sunday. They come Sunday after Sunday with no real submission to the Lord of the Sabbaths. They sing the songs, but with very little thought and even less feeling. They pray the prayers, but while the prayer is being led, their minds drift in all different directions. They give their offerings, but only because they feel obligated to. They listen to the Word, but only in the most academic of interests. They might even pray publicly when called upon, but their consuming thought is how they sound to others rather than coming before the throne of the Almighty God. I'm saying it's it's possible for even the people of God to slip into living like the Pharisees. Jesus talked about this back in chapter 5, didn't He? He said, don't be like the Pharisees the Pharisees. And I'll tell you this, here's what makes it really scary. That kind of cold, dead formality is only a step or two away from self-righteousness. The kind of self-righteousness that the Pharisees had that could mask unbelief. So that on the outside... Everything looks right, but the heart is full of unbelief, no repentance, apathy toward the gospel. It's never moved them, but everyone looks at them as if they're they're the godly person. It is possible to clean yourself up on the outside, but inside be full of Iniquity and dead men's bones, to hide selfishness under a cloak of religiosity, to be a a person who supposedly has all of the answers in terms of doctrine, but who has no real knowledge of Christ. And if it could happen in those days, it could happen just as surely today. That it's possible for some to be Pharisees. and Many of us, the rest of us, to become Pharisee-like. And I'm wanting to warn us today of the grave danger of living a sort of detached Christianity that's one thing outwardly but inwardly very different. That's not characterized by a growing love for the Savior, but just a going through the motions. And if you feel like maybe there's a little bit of that that characterizes you today, And I call you today to repent of your lack of love for God, mercy toward others, to confess it as a great evil, to acknowledge it, and to pray for deliverance from it. I admonish you today to determine to go back to the means of grace, the word and prayer and make more earnest use of them. I admonish you today to get on your knees and pour out your heart to God to confess your coldness and your deadness and your apathy and do not stop until you just are able to beg God to revive you again, to make your relationship with Him real, and your love warm. And I'll tell you, if you will pray, and you'll pray, and you'll pray, and you'll wait, that the Lord will revive. You'll say with the Messiah, after two days I am revived, and the third day I'm I'm raised again. It takes a great humility uh, coming to the Lord with brokenness. And I'll tell you this, listen to me, brokenness and humility never fails to win the heart of Christ. It doesn't. He condescends to people who are lowly and broken who say, Lord, I am in need. Revive my Poor, dead soul, please come to me. Help me, I need you. Oh, he is so faithful. He resists the proud, those Pharisees who feel like they have it all together and everything's okay. But to those who are humble, he says, I come to you with nothing but grace. Let's take a moment and humble ourselves before the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the teaching this morning and also for for the warnings by way of example. Please, God, deliver us from a ritualistic, dead religiosity. Please, Lord, help no one to deceive himself. Let none of us be Pharisees, O Lord. And even in our zeal for you, O Lord, Let it always be a zeal with love. We pray that you would give us a joy in Christ, a love for him, a delight in him, a rejoicing in you, and a mercy for those around us, we pray, in Jesus' name.